It's no secret to those of you who have either known me or attended Calvary for even just a few months that I enjoy sports and athletics. And, uh, you know, I'm willing to watch almost any sport on TV, but there's something unique and special to me about the Olympics, probably because it only comes around every four years, probably also because... um, You know, uh, track and field is not something that's usually or often on television, but in the Olympics, my favorite events to watch are the sprints, probably because I can't sprint, Um, probably because my sprint looks more like a walk to most people, but I love to watch the the 100 meters, the 200 meters, the 400 meters, and uh, the 800 meters, of course, is um, not considered a sprint, but when I watch those people run the 800, it's a sprint. Uh, This week, I actually went back and I was watching some of uh, Joaquin Cruz's highlights for those of you who remember him, the gold medalist in the 800, a Brazilian in uh, 1984. I love watching those races. Uh, In Olympic sprints, a runner is disqualified if he or she starts too early. So if they start running before the gun goes off, it's called a false start. And the runner that's guilty of this infraction must leave the track and is barred from competing in that race. And that's a harsh punishment. It's caused a lot of pain and frustration for runners who dedicate their lives to preparing for the Olympics only to have one mistake, usually a question of a matter of hundreds of seconds, but that one mistake keeps them from competing. But just as a false start is disastrous, it doesn't mean that the runners don't prepare to run. And it doesn't mean that they're not ready for the gun to go off. So when the starter says, on your mark, get set, no runner just stands back behind the block saying, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even going to get close because I know if I start before the gun goes off, I'll be eliminated. So I'm going to wait back here. Of course not. Even though a false start has to be avoided, at the same time, the runner must be prepared and ready for when the race does begin. So if a runner just stands back and waits for the gun to go off to start getting ready, they will lose the race. I mean, the 100 meters for men is run in under 10 seconds now. So if you even take half a second longer to prepare, you're out of the race. Last week, uh, we looked at what I called the great transition in Acts. The, 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 the transition from the presence of God with his disciples in the physical presence of Jesus to the presence of God with his disciples by the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit was going to empower the disciples to be witnesses of Christ and his resurrection to the world. But Jesus did tell them at the beginning of Acts not to begin that work right away, but to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. But as we're going to see today, the disciples did not interpret the command to wait as do nothing. And and sometimes we might think of waiting as doing nothing. Uh, Many of you probably remember Dale Downs, uh, Dale and Patty Downs were uh, an integral part of our, of our congregation, and they blessed us here in many ways. But I remember Dale 
brought something to, to light for me about the word wait that I had never considered before. When it's used in Scripture, and particularly that verse, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And I, I always imagined that word wait as just sitting and doing nothing. And maybe sometimes it is. Perhaps it is. But in English, the word wait can also mean to serve. That's what we call people in restaurants. They are waiters. That doesn't mean they stand there and do nothing the whole time you're, you're there. They are engaged in serving you. So those who wait upon the Lord, those who serve upon the Lord, those who are ready to do what he says, um, will renew their, their strength will be renewed like the eagle. So in, in this situation where Jesus tells the disciples to wait, it's not primarily a waiting of passivity. But as we're going to see here, they understood this command to wait as a command to prepare. So you're not going to start the work yet. You're going to wait for the Holy Spirit. But clearly the disciples say, okay, then we're going to prepare. So the second part of the first chapter of Acts is the stage of preparation. The church is about to be launched. This new community, this new entity that God is establishing on earth, it is in its preparatory uh, phase. And it's, it's the spiritual equivalent of on your mark, get set. So the disciples are preparing for the starter's pistol of the Holy Spirit. And today, I would like us to examine in the second half of the first chapter of Acts, the four elements of their preparation. So I'll be reading here uh, from Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field, in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. 
So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. The first element of preparation in which the disciples engage is prayer. As we consider our own lives and our own calling to be witnesses of Jesus, this should not surprise us. Prayer is absolutely essential, and we all would say that it is, right? I mean, if someone asked us, is prayer essential to the Christian life and and mission? Oh, yes, of course, absolutely. But our actions often speak differently. The text says that during this waiting period, the disciples joined together constantly in prayer. It was not occasional, but it was consistent. This attitude toward prayer acknowledges the sovereignty and supremacy of God. It's a way that the church has of saying to the Lord, we can do nothing without you. I once heard an acquaintance of mine say, prayer is not our way of changing God. It's God's way of changing us. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've uh, been facing a, a situation involving our uh, apartment where we live. I've, I've mentioned to you before that there's a, a legal battle or at least a, a dispute going on over who actually owns this apartment. We've rented from the group that we, we thought and still think really owns the apartment, but then we didn't know there was a dispute when we moved in. Anyway, it, it's kind of messy. And... Um, This week, I needed to take a certain action, and I I thought I knew the best thing to do. Um, But I also realized that I was limited in my own vision. I was fallible in my understanding, and I was really inexperienced in these matters. So you know what I did? I consulted a lawyer. I went to someone who had more authority, more understanding, and more knowledge than I did about the situation, and that made all the difference. When it comes to the mission and vision of the church, we must all acknowledge our limited ability to accomplish anything. We must understand that if we desire to see God work in and through us, to see his vision fulfilled in us, to see multiplication, discipleship, equipping, and sending, then we have to be committed to prayer. Not only individually, but corporately. That's a foundational piece of spiritual preparation for the mission of the church. The second element of spiritual preparation is the Christian community. Everything that happens in these verses that I've read happens as the disciples are gathered together. And it's not only the 11 disciples. There were 12, remember, as this text reminds us, Judas betrayed Jesus and then killed himself. And we see a fairly graphic description of what happened to his body, apparently when he was cut down after hanging himself. And isn't, Anyway, I don't need to go into it, but it's in the Bible. Uh, but everything that happens in these verses is not just the 11 disciples. It's all the believers at least that were known at that point. So Luke says there were about 120 of them. And it's this community that is gathered together and that are praying together. 
Now, these are subpoints here, so I want to make sure you catch them. What happens in this community, or how does this community act? So there are four subpoints here. The, the head point is community. The community is part of the preparation. Now, how is that community acting? First of all, the community affirms the leadership and gifting of Peter. Peter rises to begin speaking as a leader, and, and the community affirms that leadership. Jesus had already intimated that Peter was going to fill a leadership role among the disciples and in the early days of the church. And now as Peter takes that responsibility, there's an implication of the community affirming and ratifying Peter's gifting to lead. Uh, I think this is something that we, we sometimes undersell or under-recognize the importance of the Christian community in affirming a gifting or affirming a calling of an individual. Um, I've had situations before where people come to me um, and, and they're, they're convinced that they have a particular gift and an, or a particular ability and, and no one else around them sees that gifting. And that's a way that we need to be submitted to the Christian community um, because we are fallible and we often have blind spots. And so we need the Christian community to reflect back to us and to affirm leadership, to affirm gifting and calling. And we see the early Christian community doing this here in Acts. The second activity of this community is that they are interpreting Scripture together. Um, Peter speaks, he quotes Scripture to make his points to show the disciples what they should do next. And he's interpreting and applying that scripture in the context of the broader community. The community affirms, and albeit silently, but they affirm Peter's understanding and application of scripture. Uh, because there's nothing specific in these Psalms of David there's nothing specific that relates it to Judas. In other words, what I mean by that is it doesn't say, in the future there will arise this man named Judas who will become a disciple of the Messiah and he will betray the Messiah. He doesn't. That's not stated there. But Peter understands this by the Holy Spirit and he applies it in that way and the community affirms that interpretation. We need each other. We need the body to help keep us grounded and interpreting Scripture correctly. Um, it's easy when we're on our own to make mistakes, to go down rabbit trails, to, um, to perhaps read something and interpret it incorrectly in Scripture. Now, that's not, that does, I'm not telling you not to read Scripture, quite the opposite. But when you have questions, when we're uncertain, when there are things that are confusing, we need the counsel of the body and the wisdom of the body to make sure that we're walking the right path in that. There, there was a pastor um, in, in the city in which I lived in, in Baytown, Texas, in, in the U.S., where Julie and I met, and he was uh, kind of infamous for how he prided himself on being very conservative. And he was quoted as saying once, I'm so conservative that when I hear that someone else believes the same thing I believe, I stop believing it. 
Now, that was said partly as a joke, uh, but he was trying to, to, to just t- show how prideful he was in his conservatism, however he defined that. But the problem with that approach is that we are not subjecting ourselves to the wisdom and the counsel of the body, of the Christian community. The Christian community helps us persevere, helps us know that we are interpreting Scripture correctly. When we go off on our own without the accountability of the body, we can easily fall into error. Thirdly, the community discerns the will of God together. So Peter speaks and proposes a way forward for the disciples. He tells them what he believes they should do next. And again, we see that the community upholds and confirms the will of God for the next step. This is another gift that the body gives to its members. How often are we seeking to know God's will for a situation or a decision? And I know for me what a relief or blessing it is to be able to share that question, to share that uncertainty with brothers and sisters, to receive prayer for God's wisdom, and then share what we think we should do and ask for that feedback and reflect together. It's foolish to ignore the input and wisdom of the body of Christ. The community is a gift to us that helps us discern the will of God. And we see this happening in the very first instance of this new entity of Christian community in Acts. Now, fourthly, here's the fourth way that the community is interacting. This community is affirming the value of its members. Okay, so they are... uh, seeking the will of God together. They are interpreting Scripture together. They are, um, I forgot the first point. So the, the first thing that they're doing, they're affirming Peter's leadership, okay, leadership and gifting. And now they're affirming the value of each of its members. We know that the Christian community, the church, is often compared to a physical body, right, with each part performing a valuable function, and each part having intrinsic value. But this idea of the inherent value of each being, that was unique in the ancient Near East. That was not a common perspective. And in in this upper room here, we see something mentioned kind of in passing, but which in its context is amazing. Who is present? So Luke lists the 11 disciples, but then he specifically states that the women were together with them. And then he highlights Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Christ's brothers as well. The fact that the women were not only present, but acknowledged as being fully present with the men as valued members of the community, that was iconoclastic for its time. This new community, it's already breaking precedence because it's showing the women as valued members The body of believers is elevating and acknowledging the value of women. This was not common in Jewish circles. The women did not have a voice and were not present as the men deliberated and made decisions. Even in the synagogues, it was only the men who would speak. It was only the men who were present. But Luke goes out of his way to show that this community is already different. It's something new. Brothers and sisters, we need the community. We need the body of Christ. Do not give up meeting together. 
Do not give up investing in each other. Do not go it alone. Each member is valuable and unique, and together we form the body of Christ. We are stronger together, and the community helps us persevere. Let me just give a little plug right here for our community groups. I know I've done this before, but I, I encourage you, if you are not a part of a community group, I would encourage you to express that interest so that you can join one. Uh, of course, we're all part of the broader body that is Calvary International Church, but it's difficult to form, I would say it's impossible to form deep, meaningful relationships with every single other person who attends Calvary. So we do have to, in a sense, focus down um, our relationships. You know, last I checked, I have over, I think I have close to 3,000 Facebook friends. You know how many of those people I'm actually close to? A uh, very small percentage. So the same thing is true. We need a smaller group where we can really interact in this kind of community. So the second aspect of the disciples' preparation is this value and focus upon the community. This brings us then to, our, to the third aspect of preparation. The third element of preparation that we see in the disciples is a seeking of the Lord in his word. So scripture is this third element. And the view of scripture that we see relayed here is important because first of all, we see that these disciples saw Scripture as timeless, okay? Number one, timeless. Peter acknowledges that what was written long ago was applicable to their current situation. He specifically says, this was written long ago. This was spoken long ago through the mouth of David. And now he's taking it and applying it hundreds of years later to their current situation, this truth remains, Scripture is living and active. It speaks today, even as it spoke thousands of years ago. Scripture is timeless. Secondly, Scripture is the Word of God. Wow, that's earth-shattering, right? We always, or often, I should say, refer to the Bible as the Word of God. We talk about Scripture as the Word of God. Do we understand what we're saying when we make that claim? This is the literal word of God? The verses that Peter quotes come from the Psalms. They were written by King David. But you notice how Peter views them. What does he say? That they were spoken by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David. So last week, we noted that one of these transitions had to do with the communication of the Spirit. That whereas Jesus had been speaking to them physically, now the Holy Spirit was going to be communicating the Word of God and interpreting the Word of God. And Peter is, has grasped that. And he, it's also showing us that the, these disciples the ancient Near Eastern Jews had the same understanding of Scripture that the New Testament has that we have today, which is that it's inspired by God. So Peter goes so far as to say these are literal words spoken by the Holy Spirit, but he speaks it through his servant, David. 
This also tells us that the Holy Spirit wasn't idle before the Pentecost. Maybe sometimes we have this impression that the Holy Spirit was just on vacation in heaven um, for, you know, from the, the very beginning of time and even before that until Pentecost. And finally, the Father says, okay, it's your turn. He's like, oh, finally, I've been waiting literally forever. Um, but the Holy Spirit as the Godhead, as, as a member of the Godhead, has been equally as active in all human history, as the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit is the one speaking the Word of God, inspiring the writers who wrote it, inspiring the psalmists who composed these songs and psalms, inspiring the prophets who spoke the Word of God to His people. Scripture is the actual, real, literal communication of God by the Holy Spirit to His church. Let us value it as such. Thirdly, and lastly, as it relates to Scripture, clearly Peter and the disciples view it as authoritative. Okay? So they view it as timeless. They view it as the Word of God. And they view it as authoritative. In other words, Scripture speaks into the life of the disciples then, and it speaks into the life of the church today, and it is, it is the authority to move action and decisions and attitudes. Peter is suggesting, actually he's doing more than suggesting. He is stating what he believes to be the next step that they are to take, the next action. And he bases that call to action on the Scripture and the authority of Scripture to dictate and to move action all throughout history. Friends, in, in preparing for and carrying out the mission and vision of God for his church, his word is essential and vital. It is authoritative. Even as we must dedicate ourselves to prayer, even as we must dedicate ourselves to the Christian community, we must dedicate ourselves to the word of God. And this brings us now to the fourth and final aspect of preparation. And this aspect is purpose. The disciples kept their purpose before them as their priority. How is this shown in this passage? Well, first of all, I want to give you a little background. Uh, something that, that happened in one of my seminary classes. It was a Greek exegesis class that was coupled and combined with a preaching class. So in other words, we were learning principles of interpreting Scripture from the original Greek, but then we were not just interpreting it, we were making it practical and um, writing out, forming sermon outlines based upon what we were interpreting. And one of the, the, the first days in this class, we were dealing with this passage from the second half of Acts chapter 1. And uh, our professor, I, I have so much respect for this man. He's a, uh, a German, uh, just brilliant, and could speak biblical Greek like it was German or English. I mean, just incredible knowledge. And the time that we were in this class was, it was Early on, when internet access was becoming broadly accessible anywhere, 
So it was still a little bit new to see everyone sitting in this class with their laptops open in front of them. And not only were the laptops open for taking notes, but everyone had internet access. And if, I'm going to be honest, that can be a temptation, you know? If you're sitting in a, in a, in a seminary class for four hours at a time, uh, you know, you can look like you're taking notes and you can do a whole lot of other stuff. Anyway, um, this was kind of a, a, a challenge to stay focused sometimes, but I remember so vividly as we were going through this passage, this professor stopped and he said, stop. I want to stop everything here. And I want to say, this passage is not about how we make decisions as Christians. He said, that's not the point of this passage. So tomorrow, because we all had to make an outline of, of, for a sermon on this passage, so he said, tomorrow, I don't want anyone standing up here and saying that the point of this passage is how we should make decisions as Christians, that we should pray first, that we should dedicate it to the Lord, that we should acknowledge his authority, and then we should cast lots to decide what we should do. Now, he, he's, of course, no one casts lots today, but he said that's not the point of this passage. The next morning, one of the first people to stand up did exactly what he told us not to do. And it was after such a clear point he had made. Uh, it was kind of an awkward uh, silence when he was done. But the point I want to make with this is it's easy for us to get lost in, in this kind of unique way that they chose Matthias. Wow, well, why would they do that? Why would they cast lots? That's strange. Well, we've got to find some way to make this spiritual, you know, because we can't make decisions today just by throwing dice. The, listen, the point is, this was the way that God had established in the Old Testament for his people to often make decisions. Um, that's different now. Uh, we don't do that. But the point is, that's not the focus. How to make a biblical decision, how to make a Christian decision, a spiritual decision, that's not the thrust of this passage. The thrust of this passage is witness. Why did they choose Matthias? Why did they think it was necessary? Because they wanted to make sure that they were prepared to witness. What was the purpose of the church? Why, why was the Holy Spirit going to empower them to be witnesses of Jesus? And, and what does Peter say? Why do they need to choose someone to replace Judas? Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. You see, the disciples already are starting to understand, okay, our purpose is witness. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 disciples. We need to replace one because we want to have the full complement of witnesses so that when that starter pistol goes off, when the Holy Spirit comes, we're ready. We don't have to waste any time beginning to fulfill that purpose. Now, 
Peter uses the phrase, it is necessary. And in, in the Greek, that's a very strong phrase. It's like a compulsion. It's not a suggestion. It's not, this would be a good idea. It's, this is necessary. It's something we have to do to be prepared to carry out our purpose. And listen, it's not about Matthias, because you know what? We never hear about him again. This is his only mention in Scripture. So it's not about who he was, but it's about the concept we are prepared to fulfill the mission that the Holy Spirit will empower in the church, which is to be witnesses for Christ. And we see that there's a criteria, right? There are two criteria for this person they're going to choose to complete the number of witnesses. Number one, someone who had been an associate of Jesus. That meant they had been with Jesus. They had accompanied him during his ministry. And they say specifically here from the time that he was baptized by John in the Jordan until he returned to heaven. And the second requirement was what? That they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. That they had seen both the dying Jesus and they had seen the resurrected Christ. And so... The, the number of witnesses is complete, 12, as they prepare to explode onto the world scene in the power of the Holy Spirit to witness to the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all of this they're doing so that this new community, the people of God, the church, would be prepared to fulfill its mission as soon as the Holy Spirit arrived. We as a local church are not in the same kind of preparatory stage as the disciples were in this account. But the principles from this passage cross time and situations and apply to any endeavor in which we might engage. Consider the vision that we believe God has, has given us to be a vibrant family glorifying God through multiplying, discipling, equipping, and sending. To fulfill that vision, we must be committed to prayer. We must be com committed to the community, both giving and receiving life from it, just as the parts of a body give and receive life from the body. We must value, invest in, and study Scripture, for in it, we see revealed to us the true communication of God through his spirit to the church. And these three together will provide the foundation for us to fulfill our purpose, the purpose of witnessing to the truth of Jesus Christ to a world that is dying and being ripped apart. So as individuals, the question that come to us, the question that comes to us is where is it that we need to refocus? Where is it, particularly in these four questions, these four aspects of, of preparation, is there one or more in which we have lost focus or where we have slipped, whether it's in our commitment to prayer or to the scripture or to the Christian community, or whether we've just simply forgotten our purpose? Forgotten that our primary calling is to be witnesses of Christ in this world. As the Holy Spirit convicts you of those things, as the Holy Spirit brings those to mind, this is an opportunity to both repent, but then also to refocus 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. 